and welcome to Over the Outrage, where we will be subverting the outrage industrial complex one episode at a time. I'm your host, Brittany Novotny, and joining me today, I have a very special guest, an old friend of mine. Adam McLean Snipes is a public affairs consultant and the former chief of staff for Congresswoman Kendra Horn. Adam also was a campaign manager of mine back in 2010 when I ran for the Oklahoma State Legislature. We've been friends for now over a decade, so long time no see. Adam, how are you doing today? Hey, y'all. I'm doing great, Brittany. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for joining me today. Um, I brought you on today as uh, somewhat of an expert on the H.R. 1, the House Resolution 1 that's uh, currently being heard in, I believe it's now being in, in a Senate in the Judiciary Committee. I know Amy Klobuchar posted this week about bringing it to hearing in her committee. So um, so we're, we're seeing it's already passed the House, and it's called the For the People Act. This has many facets to it, right? Yeah, um, I, uh, I'm excited that uh, this is being considered. Um, in 2020, we saw a lot of activity trying to limit folks' um, access to vote. Um, this piece of legislation has several components to it. Um, for me as a nerd uh, who likes looking at districting and maps, um, this piece of legislation would limit gerrymandering. Um, it requires districts to be drawn by independent redistricting commissions. Um, it expands the um, use of voting by mail, which we saw huge mail-in voting numbers due to the pandemic uh, in 2020. Um, also interesting uh, for us Okies listening is this expands the early voting window by 15 consecutive days in Oklahoma. You only get a couple of days, um, which is really problematic for working families. It makes uh, Election Day a federal holiday, um, so that would give people a little bit more ease um, in getting away from work to go vote. Um, right now, you are allowed to go vote. Your employer can't stop you, um, but they can really limit the availability of the time that they give you to go vote. Um, we talked about a little bit about voter suppression. It stops voter roll purges. Um, which I've got some mixed feelings about that. Um, it reduces the influence of dark money and politics by limiting, um, once you give over $10,000 to a super PAC, you have to disclose your identity. Um, it re-enfranchises voters, um, felons who have served their sentences get added back in. Um, so it's, it's interesting because, um, it really reduces the, the influence of big money and politics. Um, and that is done through a donation matching for small dollar donations through um, some public financing mechanisms. Um, so, so there are some really, really interesting things for us to chew on for our conversation today and, and uh, this piece of legislation. Yeah, and it, it's got so many components. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm going to cover this more on, on future episodes and just voting rights in general. Just it's kind of the major issue of our time right now um, as we now see the um, our country's conservative party retreating to a uh, position of 
trying to win by keeping people from voting rather than trying to have better ideas. Um, so right. I, I think, um, you know, to me, this is the fundamental crux of our of our dem- democracy versus authoritarianism. And, and that's why I really wanted to cover it right away in one of my earlier episodes and start moving on this. Um, I did notice you brought up the... Um, the voter purges that you said you had some mixed feelings about. Could you explain what your mixed feelings on the on the purges is? Yeah, so um, typically the way it works, so I can speak um, to the state of Oklahoma's election laws and a little bit nationally as well, but I've got the most experience in Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, the way that you sort of quote-unquote get kicked off is um, – you have to have not voted in the past two presidential elections. Once you sit out two presidential elections, they send a uh, piece of mail, like just a little generic postcard to the house that you are registered to vote at or apartment or whatever the address they have on file. And then if you don't respond to that, that's how you get quote unquote purged. Like that's when they remove you as somebody who works in campaigns and elections, we refer to that as deadwood. Um, so I enjoy knowing who's actually an active voter on the voter file. It means that I have to do, um, less sort of targeting to know where that deadwood is. Um, there are states who do purges faster. So like Massachusetts is a good example. I think that they do purges too quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's one election cycle in Massachusetts. And that I really wonder about because there are a lot of things that could impact um, why somebody sits out just one presidential election. So I don't really, you know, I I think that Oklahoma actually strikes a good balance on election security. And we'll probably get into that because election security is a big part of the the rights talking points against HR1. Um, Mm -hmm. I think Oklahoma is actually, shockingly, uh, a good model when it comes to how to run elections that are safe, secure, and convenient for folks, with the exception of the early voting and how hard it is to vote by mail. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the early voting. Um, you know, and and the the purging in some states happening after one election cycle, that, that does seem too fast to me. I, I mean, anybody yeah. who knows me knows I'm a regular voter, and I tend to vote not just in the big presidential campaigns. I vote in primaries. I vote in local elections. But something I haven't admitted to a lot of people is that in 2012, um, you know, I had plans to go to Colorado for uh, to be an election protection attorney for the Obama campaign. And so I thought, oh, I'll just, you know, stop by the election board on the Friday before on my way out of town. No biggie. I'll go vote. Then I'll head to head to Denver, do my training and and be ready to do uh, election protection for the Obama campaign. Well, when I got to the election board that Friday as I was driving my way out of town, there was a line like a mile long and it looked like I was probably going to have to delay my trip by like four hours. And I was like, well, look, you know, Oklahoma's not a swing state. Like my vote for Obama here isn't going to make or break this. I'm going to probably do more good being an election protection attorney in Colorado that was a swing state that year than my vote would do at home. 
So I ended up just passing on voting. And like, so Mm -hmm. under a Massachusetts rule, not voting in a presidential election, you know, suddenly I'd be possibly purged if I, you know, happen to miss some small postcard that might get caught up in the junk mail or something. Right. You know, that that does seem wrong because, you know, I had a valid reason that year that it just wasn't going to work. But it's a reason that had Oklahoma had the extended period for early voting and that everybody wasn't trying to crush it for the three days that it was open, uh, then maybe I wouldn't have had such a huge line there and I would have been able to actually vote early. Yeah, and I think that that's, that's exactly right. You know, and there's, there's work that, um, outreach work that is done by left-leaning candidates specifically to uh, people of color called Souls to the Polls, S-O-U-L-S. And that is when um, folks mobilize and, um, well, in Oklahoma City, we march to the polls um from from the churches um evocative of the civil rights movement um and i think that that's really important for folks to understand who aren't people of color is like the the access to early voting is really really significant and a lot of communities um that the right um knows that they mobilize um will not be supportive of their candidates right um, so understanding what the lay of the land is and what's at play is really, really important. Um, you know, it's one of our most sacred rights, um, and we shouldn't give it up easily and we should advocate for more folks to have more time, um, sure. to be the Yeah. You know, and, a, and another aspect of HR one you brought up a little bit ago was the federal holiday for election day. And I, I, I was thinking about that and what practical impact that could have, not just on people having the time to go vote, but mm-hmm. one, of, one of the complaints leading up to 2020 and one of the big fears of holding this 2020 election during the pandemic was most of the people that work polling places tend to be older, retired folks and how many of them were going to be willing to work polling places in the middle of a pandemic? And, you know, at least up here in Minnesota, we had record numbers of people in their 30s and 40s signing up to be poll workers. And I think a big portion of that was because during the pandemic, a lot of folks in my situation who are, you know, attorneys or other kinds of professionals suddenly found themselves able to say, hey, yeah, I can I can give half of my workday to sitting at a polling place and still go home and get my work done. And so people like me were able to sign up and volunteer for capacities that, you know, in a regular work environment and regular year might not have had the opportunity. And I think that's another plus that making uh, a federal holiday out of election day will also increase the number of people who can work these polling places. Yeah, and I would encourage anybody listening to sign up to be a poll worker. I've done it before. Um, It was really fascinating. You go through, um, in Oklahoma, poll training once, 
Um, and what I learned when I reported to my precinct is the folks who are running it, who've been running it for decades, right? And they're your neighbors. They try to put you in the precinct that you live in or nearby, which I thought was really cool. But they hadn't been trained since we had passed voter ID laws. So they were actually proctoring and applying the law incorrectly and were trying to turn away people who were eligible to vote, uh, mostly students who are presenting university IDs, which is considered a state ID. So I do think, you know, as we're looking at the legislative landscape, folks who really care about civic engagement and these policies are changing, it's important because there's not annual training for a lot of these folks that um, folks get involved and get that consciousness um, directly to the folks who are trying to access their right to vote. Yeah, I think one of the um, interesting side effects of the tumultuous last four years is the degree to which it seems to have woken a lot of people our age up to mm -hmm. the realization that you can't just sit back anymore and expect other people to be doing all these jobs. And, you know, this world isn't just going to hand everything to you and it's going to be on each and every one of us to step up and fill roles. And, you know, we've seen record numbers of people registering to run for office, record numbers of people registering to be poll workers. I know in Minnesota, I signed up to be election protection for the Biden team this year. And we had like over 3,500 attorneys sign up in Minnesota to do election wow. protection, <laughs> just on the Democratic side. And I yeah. know on the Republican side, they were actually in such bad need of volunteers that they actually started pushing for like non-attorneys and saying like, just anybody, can you like maybe come be a poll watcher? <laughs> yeah. And, and they only, I think, ended up with like 30. Wow. So um, the, the disparities yeah. in the numbers of people we had coming out. Uh, were, were very big, and I think a result of seeing exactly what happens for the last four years when we all just kind of quit paying attention and think everything's just going to take care of itself. Yeah, and you know, I think that that's a really interesting point. Like, yes, the four years happened, so people really started paying more attention, um, but the pandemic also had people asking questions about how right? And the rules of the game. And it's interesting to me, uh, in preparation for this conversation, I went and looked at some poll results. And there was a poll done in January of this year by the um, Data for Progress and Equal Citizens, saying that HR5 is broadly supported by American voters with 67% um, supporting the bills. And that's even after the participants were provided opposition messaging. Even more interesting, when you break it down, 77% support amongst Democrats, 68% amongst independents, and 56% amongst Republicans. And that's even in the face of opposition messaging. Um, so clearly, people understand um, that what's at stake. Well, and I, you know, it's also interesting that you know, the, the party that was most complaining about the rules of the game for the last year is also the, the same people that are not offering any new solutions here and just opposing HR1 and um, have brought literally nothing but suppression to the table as answers to 
what ails our political system. Right, right. And you know what they're going to do on the Senate side is just the filibuster, right? Um, which means that you need a supermajority, you need 60 votes to actually bring the legislation to a vote in the Senate. Um, and that's, you know, indicative of um, uh, the, the polarization and the fact that, you know, the narrative is taken over by the extremes, um, which which you talk about, you know, and it's kind of the purpose of creating this space that we have here today. Um, but, you know, filibuster reform has to be on the table if you want to look at passing a piece of legislation that's supported by the majority of Americans, including the majority of Republicans. Um, oh, and, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, anybody who listened to, to last week's episode, you know, you'll know exactly why, you know, filibuster reform has to happen. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, if I recall the numbers I brought to the table last week, it was, you know, the there are nine states that make up 52% of the population. So 50, yeah. 52% of the population gets represented by 18% of the U.S. Senate. And then they have the, the goal to say they need the filibuster to protect minority rights. Like... The minority already clearly controls the Senate, like by a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I don't. I mean, even if you even if you put the threshold at fifty-one votes, the minority still has like way more say than uh, than the majority does. So yeah. um, then you have guys like Manchin out here, just you know, at least lately he seems to be making a move. Um, He's open to reform now, while he's still saying, hell no, I won't get rid of it. Um, I It does seem that the Biden administration and fellow senators have been talking to him behind the scenes, to where he's recently said, you know, maybe we can open it up to going back to you have to actually have a speaking filibuster, and you don't just get to lodge your filibuster and go off and play, but you actually have to stand there for hours on end, reading from War and Peace or whatever it is you're trying to do to to just fill that time. And I think that that's a meaningful, practical reform, because then it's a lot harder for you to, to face voters when they've seen you pull a stunt than when you've just lodged a, something behind the scenes and nobody even knows what happened. Right. Um, so something like that could be helpful. I, I certainly think, um, I think he mentioned he might even be open to, to dropping the number to, to, to 55 votes needed to defeat a filibuster instead of 60. So that could open some room. I also just think, though, that... Um, the filibuster is is often particularly on the right talked about as this is something that promotes bipartisanship but i think that's actually wrong and that if anything it promotes the polarization that we're seeing because if you currently are a senator that doesn't like something you just put that hold on it behind the scenes and every other senator in your party can just hide behind you and say, oh, yeah, you know, Cruz put a hold on this one. Nothing I can do. Throw my hands up and pretend like, oh, yeah, I liked that that 
really popular policy, but, oh, you know, that guy over there, he put a hold on it. What can I do? Um, yeah. Whereas if this stuff has to come to a vote, and, you know, you're going to have to go on record being against something that 56% of your party and 77% of the public supports, well, that now gives your next opponent some real ammunition to use against you, and you have to face the voters on your actual, you know, positions, not just, oh, yeah, I liked it, but sorry, never came to a vote, oops. Right, right. And imagine that world, you know, um, where people, uh, politicians, um, are living in a game where um, the lines are drawn by independent redistricting commissions, doesn't impact the senators as much as it does the uh, members of Congress, but, you know, allowing, um, uh, disallowing uh, the politicians to choose the people that they want, and instead allowing the people to choose the politicians that represent them, that's a novel idea, right? Um, and then a world in which that there is more disclosure, um, you know, working on uh, former Congresswoman Horn's um, race in 18 and in 20, um, we didn't take any money um, from PACs. And that was really important to people, uh, know that she was not um, going to be representing any interest groups, but she was going to go to D.C. and represent them. Um, and that was a breath of fresh air for a lot of people. Yeah, and you guys, uh, you know, shocked the world in 2018 with uh, being the the race that had the the district with the biggest Trump margin to actually flip to a blue district in 2018, and then you had the headwinds of having having the former guy at the top of the ballot in the last election and kind of hurt you out in Seminole County and Pottawatomie County, right? Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And you, you, you guys still almost pulled it off. Um, right. It, if I recall, this was like a fifty-one forty-nine kind of vote, not a. The gap was a little bit bigger than that, but I appreciate it. Um, but it, it was it was within a few points, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it HR one was uh, hung around our necks like an albatross, right? Because the opposition um, was able to say. You know, Kendra Horn wants uh, you to pay for her elections, which isn't true. That's not actually what's going on here. What's actually going on here is we're just asking for transparency and disclosure. And we are asking for some uh, public financing. And the real thing about politics is that it's very expensive to run for office. And it costs, um, you know, it comes at big personal sacrifice. And I'm not saying that those things shouldn't be part of the of the equation but if we're going to talk about equity and inclusion and trying to get more people to run for office like we really do have to think about um what it takes to run uh, and i don't have to i don't have to explain that to you as somebody who's put their name on the ballot as well certainly um, this significant hindrance especially with a lot of people being saddled by student loan debt and things like that you know how are you going to have the mobility that you need to have in order to, you know, try and serve your community? It's tough. Um, so there's some systemic issues there, um, which, you know, again, I, it, it's in the influence of dark money, how public financing works. I, I would have to say that I think 
probably the portion of HR1 I do struggle with the most is the public financing aspect of it. And I have just such mixed feelings on it. Because on the one hand, having run for office and having run other campaigns, I know how much of a pain in the ass fundraising can be, how much of a pain in the ass it can be if you have one donor that's a little bit bigger donor than the others and they try to throw their weight around. And um, they do. And yep. and so I've I've seen the downside of that. But I also know that me having to raise money from people in my community when I ran for office made me a better candidate because, you know, I had to be careful how I approached issues and thoughtful about them so that I wasn't automatically turning off people that might want to donate to me. And it made me have to really consider where they were coming from and, and why they maybe felt differently than I did about certain issues. And while it, you know, certainly didn't, you know, turn me into, oh, I'm just pro-business and everything a business right. person wants, I'm going to do it. But it did give me a more full perspective that I think moderated some of my positions out a little bit to be more reflective of the community I was trying to run to represent. Um, and so I, I'm hesitant to do away with that. Because I do think there's value in it, but I also think, you know, there is some value in having additional voices um, running. I think I would feel a little better with the public financing aspect of it if it was also coming with some kind of ranked choice voting. Um, and then that way, you know, other people who maybe have more fringe ideas might get might be able to qualify for some amount of public financing and put those ideas out there, but then ultimately they won't play spoilers, I, I guess, oh, that, would, would be my concern. Do you want ranked choice voting? Would you also want like the ability to write in a candidate? Because that's how Lisa Murkowski won. A lot of people don't know that, but she lost initially. Yeah, and then she, she lost in a Republican primary and then ran a write-in for the general, correct? Right. <laughs> right. And I think, you know, write-ins in Oklahoma could be interesting, um, but in other states as well. And that's that's how you ended up, um, you know, not having Roy Moore in Alabama. Uh, that's how you ended up with Doug Jones, because a lot of people who would have been boxed into voting for Roy Moore because they couldn't find themselves voting for Doug Jones ended up writing in Nick Saban, who's the football coach in Alabama. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I mean, at least for me personally, that's that's an issue. I I think that probably needs some exploration. Um, I certainly, you know, don't expect any legislation to just f fly right through the House and Senate unchanged and just how it sits right now, but. Um, I, I can say I've definitely heard Republican congressmen and senators attacking HR1 as being a here we're going to, you know, give all this money to to candidates kind of bill and they're yeah. you know they're they're basically basically attacking it as Democrats are trying to make you pay for their elections and just like you said and and I that's a that's a powerful message that's hard to push back against and it is, but you know, I think as in the process in America, 
I, I love it, right? It is designed to force compromise and it is designed to be slow, the legislative process. And, you know, that some of the provisions that I hope stick around through the process are <clears throat> obviously the independent redistricting commission and access to voting by mail and early voting. I, I, I love all of that behavioral stuff. But then I also find the re-enfranchisement of people who are felons really interesting because the latest data I was looking at, I believe I have this right, was around 44,000 Oklahomans um, who have served their sentences would be able to you know, rejoin civic society. And I think that that's actually a really important thing um, if we're talking about um, criminal justice reform, which passed with significant su support here in, in Oklahoma when it was a state question. Um, so I, I, I'm excited for that type of thinking. We saw that that was um, really fruitful in Florida. Um, a lot of folks who were able to get re-enfranchised actually were uh, participating. Um, so, so those are the parts of the legislation that I hope um, would stick around for sure. Yeah, I, I think I really love the federal holiday. I think that just has so many positive effects all across the board, both in being able to go vote, being able to be more participatory in the process as a volunteer. I love expanding early voting periods. I love vote by mail. I really wish I wish more states would do what, you know, I think Colorado, Oregon, Utah, Alaska, and I think I'm missing one other one that... Washington State. Yeah, Washington, that do almost universal vote by mail. And yep. what they have seen is it's increased participation. You know, those states tend to be high up on voter participation every time. And it's cheaper. <laughs> it's cheaper right. to administer. It requires fewer volunteers, fewer administrate, less administration. Um, you know, if you're a conservative who cares about fiscal policy, why why wouldn't you want the policy that makes it easier for people to vote while also saving money? <laughs> Just it's a win-win. And it, you know, it hasn't turned Utah blue, you know, it's not like all those Republican voters suddenly become Democrats just because you made it easier for them to vote. Like, right. it's not a partisan thing. Like, it just is truly both a fiscally conservative policy and a more efficient policy. And I just don't know why our voting hasn't caught up to the 21st century in so many places. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And, and and folks know the power of voting by mail um, because we saw a lot of interference with um, the Postal Service um, yep. prior to the last general election, um, which is really disheartening. But you know what? We made it through. Ballots were delivered. Ballots were returned. Votes were counted um, despite numerous i think over 60 lawsuits you know the system worked the way that it was supposed to um we're seeing prosecution happen in areas where people were trying to tamper with elections and um that's that's how it's supposed to roll but you know i will say about oklahoma we do have some pretty secure elections because we use optical scan ballots or voting machines are never connected to the internet unlike other states um, they're not networked together. There's a paper backup. Everything's locked in a lockbox. Like all of these things I love about our in-person voting, but, you know, voting by mail, like 
it is very secure. You put your ballot inside of a ballot sleeve, then you put that envelope inside of another envelope. The way that the ballots are handled um, is really interesting. So I would encourage anybody who has any concerns, you can actually go watch them open um, ballots. You can't see how people have voted, but you can watch how um, things get handled. And I think that that's really important that we have that transparency. Um, you know, your name is not attached to your actual ballot. It's all attached to a barcode. The only thing your name appears on is the outer envelope. Um, so, and once it gets handled and cured, um, those things get separated. So I do think that, you know, uh, folks who are concerned about the process should just go watch. Um, go watch and see if, if those arguments hold up to what you see when you go in person um, and see how our election officials run these elections because they do a really good job. Yeah, and and up here in Minnesota, they did a great job as well. And I don't I don't know in Oklahoma if you were able to do this, but at least up here, you know, I turned in my ballot at uh, at City Hall in my town um, at the beginning of October, and mm -hmm. within a week, I was able to log in and see that they had opened my envelope and processed my ballot. And so yeah. I, I even knew, like, I don't even have to worry that I'm not going to get counted because within a week it had all gone through the process. The name envelope had been opened and separated from the ballot and the ballot was in the processing pile. And boom, I have the peace of mind of being able to log okay. in and see, yep, they got my ballot. I'm good to go. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's what happens here in Oklahoma, the ballot tracing process. The only thing that I would say, like, you know, in my dream worlds that would be different is that you would know if your ballot, um, if there was something wrong with it or your vote wasn't going to be counted for some reason prior to the actual election ending. That way you could do something called curing your ballot. Um, there's not a ballot curing process in Oklahoma right now. Um, there is one in Colorado. Um, so I do enjoy the idea of people being able to cure or fix their ballot. But I also understand logistically what that would mean for the election board and the amount of support and funding that they would need to have in order to do that um so i do know that 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 request or that dream does does come with some appropriations um and some changes in how they would have to programmatically do things but i do think it's worth it because again like our vote is sacred so i'd really um want people to if they think that their ballot has been counted or is going to be counted to know that and be assured of that before the election day ends for sure. Well, Adam, it looks like we've already run a little bit longer than my typical episodes anyway. We have just started scratching the surface on democracy ah. reform. Um, I'm sure I'd love to have you back at some point to talk some more about some of these issues. Uh, if anybody's interested in finding you on social media, are you interested in sharing any uh, where they could follow you or... Yeah, um, I'm, you know, on Facebook. Thanks, Mark Zuckerberg. Um, I'm on, you know, Instagram and Twitter. I don't even remember my Twitter handle because I'm so bad at tweeting. I I'm an think older you're at AMS Oki, maybe. Okay, there you go. And yeah. uh, I just really uh, appreciate the time and the earnest conversation, you know, um, about what's going on in our country because there's not a lot of spaces like this where, you know, there's 
that we are really trying to take the claims and the disinformation and, and investigate them critically and see if there's any truth to it. And all, all of these things are uh, around our elections are transparent. So um, if folks have any questions, I'd encourage you to get to know uh, the folks at your county election board. Yeah, absolutely. Reach out to your election boards. These generally everywhere I've been and I've worked on campaigns in Colorado, Oregon, Oklahoma, uh, Minnesota, everybody I've ever dealt with at election boards have been fantastic public servants that truly want to help you learn how the process works. So don't ever be afraid to reach out. And Adam, thank you so much for being on this week. Um, Next week, I'm I'm not sure what my topic will be just yet. I'm gonna leave leave it open ended for now, but um, hopefully we'll have you back on another episode in the future. And uh, everybody out there, y'all have a wonderful day. Thanks for joining us.